Right, good morning. So we're in uh, the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church at a place called Thessalonica. So uh, let's read from verse 13, because that's where we're at in our series. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. In just a moment, I want us to come back to that sentence. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. You killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. We were torn away for a short time. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. I wanted to come to you, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So let's just pick up on this phrase, when you heard the word, of, the word from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work within you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to unpack this passage of Scripture, we pray that your word would be living and active and would bring about change in our hearts and our thoughts. And Lord, we pray that you would guide me in what I say and that all of our hearts would be fertile soil to receive your word today. For we prayed in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the phrase, the Word of God, is used in many different ways. Because I want to talk about the, the Word of God and the work that it performs, performs in us, I think we just need to know what we mean by the Word of God. It's a phrase that occurs 232 times in the Bible. The first way in which we use the term, the Word of God, is obviously to speak about Jesus. He is the Word of God. John tells us that He became flesh and dwelt among us. Then we see in the Old Testament that before a prophet would give a prophecy, he would often say, the Word of the Lord came to me. It's almost like the prophet received a visit. And is this Christ, the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord in a pre-incarnate state? Is this the spirit of prophecy? But this is one way in which the term, the Word of the Lord, is used. The Word of the Lord came to me, says the prophets, and then I prophesied. And often when they prophesied, 
prophesy, they would bring a word from the Lord, which is a third way of speaking about the word from the Lord. So it could be a specific instruction about something from God. Often in the church, if somebody shares a word from the Lord, that's a prophetic word, and we use the phrase, the word of the Lord, in that way too. But the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, are referred to as the Word of God. Here's Jesus talking about the traditions that people invent, and He says, you invent all these traditions, and you invalidate the Word of God, that which is written, uh, that which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In John 10, Jesus also refers to the Old Testament and he's making a, a technical argument about something. You can look what it is. And he talks about how the Word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken. So there the, the Word of God and, and the Scriptures are equated. But in this context here in Thessalonians, the phrase, the Word of God, actually refers to the message of the gospel that was being shared. And we can see that from the previous few verses, when Paul says, you received not the message of men, but for what it really was, the Word of God. He was talking about the gospel message that was being preached. And in all these examples in the book of Acts, when they talk about the Word of God, they're talking talking about the gospel message being preached. And then the sixth way in which the term the Word of God is used is to refer to the, the, the Bible in its totality, and that would, of course, include the New Testament Scriptures. And for us, in the period in which we're living today, the Bible is supremely the Word of God. It is the highest authority for all matters of faith and practice. And any other so-called revelation from God, be it a dream, a thought, what the church might think about something, all of that needs to be tested against the Word of God, which is the Scriptures. One other little quick thing I want to talk, say about the Word of God is that the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word of God when the Holy Spirit confirms it in your heart. Have you ever heard that? You know, I'm reading away in the Bible and then, oh, now that's the Word of God because that was something that came alive for me. So, you know, that is the Word of God. No, all of Scripture is God's Word to us. Whether it resonates in your spirit or not, it is God's Word, and for us, the final authority in all matters. But back to this little phrase, the Word of God which is at work in you who believe. Here's another translation from the New American Standard Bible of that same verse from 2 Thessalonians. When you accept it at the Word of God for what it really is, the Word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. And I want to talk briefly now about what the Word of God does in you when you allow yourself to come in contact with it. I hope that 
you're all exposing yourself to the Word of God on a regular basis, that you are reading the Bible regularly, and not just a blessed thought for the day, but you are studying the Bible to, to gain all that it has to say. I hope you're reading books of the Bible, Kings and Chronicles and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I hope you're reading the letters of Paul in one sitting. None of this 10-minute stuff. We need to be giving ourselves to, to studying the Word of God. And I've got 12 reasons for you why we should be exposing ourselves to God's Word on a regular basis. Here's the first one. When you read God's Word, it will bring life into your life. It will bring life into your life. Jesus said of what he said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And when you read the Bible, something will happen in you. You will become more alive. In Matthew chapter 4, we read about the, the temptation of Jesus. And when the devil was tempting him, he said to the devil, man does not live by bread alone. I don't need to turn stones into bread. Because man, humankind, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's my first of the 12 points, that the word of God brings life to you. If you're feeling a bit dead or dull inside, read God's word. It is also through the Word of God that we become born again. Yes, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, but Peter writes, you have been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of God brings life to people. Secondly, the Word of God helps us to grow, and we're living in an age where many Christians haven't grown much in the last few years, but God's Word helps us to grow. In this classic passage, 2 Timothy 3, Paul reminds Timothy why God's Word is, is so important, and he says, they make you wise for salvation. That's why we read the, the Bible, because it's, it's part of us being saved. They make us wise for salvation. The Bible is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. My third point is that the Scriptures equip us. The same passage from 2 Timothy 3 says that, so that we may be equipped for, for every good work. How, how equipped are you to to share the gospel? How equipped are you to do ministry? Well, if you're not feeling equipped, maybe it's because you don't know the Scriptures well enough. I'm sure you watch your diet carefully, but what's your, your spiritual diet like? The Bible talks about those that drink milk, the, the, the babes in the faith, and those that have trained themselves in the things of the Word, those who, who eat solid food. I hope you're on a, a good diet and that the Word of God is building you up. Fourthly, the Word of God 
produces faith in us when we read it. We know this from Romans chapter 10. Why does reading the Bible produce faith in us? It's because we read about people just like us, and then we see how God worked in their lives, so then we think, well, God can do that in my life. And so reading the Word, reading about the great things that God has done, it does develop and grow faith in us. God's Word gives us practical guidance, how to raise children, how to get along as a family, how to be successful in business. These things are taught in God's Word. And if you're needing practical guidance in your life, there's no better place to look than God's Word, which is described as being a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's so much practical wisdom in God's Word, so many commands to follow that bring peace and life into our lives. The great philosophers of Greece used to say, know thyself, that, that knowing yourself and what makes you tick is an important part of growing up and maturing. Well, the Bible helps us in that process as well. It, it talks about how the Word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Have you ever felt that you've been cut by, by God's Word? That's what the people said on the day of Pentecost. We're cut to the heart. Oh, that, that hurt. God's Word can speak to us. It, it penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's good to see a doctor every year for a checkup, but it's even better to have a heart checkup by reading the Word, because God's Word is living and active. And if you expose yourself to it, it will bring about change in your life. It will identify issues in your life that need to be fixed. You can read a parable of Jesus like the prodigal son, and suddenly you think, hey, that older brother, that's me right there. You can read the parable of the Good Samaritan and suddenly think, hey, that Levite and the priest, that's me. There are times when the Bible can pack a massive punch. You know there's a verse in Jeremiah that says, is not my word like a hammer that smashes a rock? That's the, the power of the word of God. James says the word of God is, is like a mirror. It you can look at God's Word and it will show you what you're like. God's Word also cleanses us. This is a funny one. But just living in this world makes you dirty. Just living in this world makes us dirty. Like Isaiah, we can say we're a I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm living among an unclean people. There's so much evil and, and rubbish in our culture that just rubs off on us. The Word of God renews our mind. It, it cleanses us. Here's this verse from, from John 15. Jesus says, you are clean because of the Word 
I have spoken to you. God's Word helps us to pray. Oh, that's a good one. It talks about the washing with water through the Word. When you hear a good sermon, it's like getting a good shower or a bath. There's, there's a, a washing of, of the Word. Just like you need to wash your face when you wake up in the morning, you need to wash your heart by reading God's Word. God's Word also helps us to pray. We, people are frustrated. Well, God's not answering my prayer. And I'm thinking, yeah, but are you praying according to His Word? Because when we've hidden His Word in our hearts and our values and our thoughts have been shaped by His Word, suddenly our prayers do be, start being answered because we're now praying prayers that are in keeping with what God is doing and not just with what we want. God's Word brings victory. We see that in the temptations of Jesus. Every time He responds with a, a Word of God. And the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. We sometimes will read the armor of God, verse 17 of Ephesians 6, and the sword of the Spirit, and we think, oh, it's the sword of the Spirit. And, and no, it tells us what the sword of the Spirit is, which is the Word of God. If you want to be able to have victory in your life and, and win spiritual battles like Jesus in temptation, you need to be able to draw on God's Word and know God's Word. As a Christian, what is your sword of the Spirit like? Is it some tiny little thing? Or can you wield the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God with authority and power? And God's Word brings prosperity. We're told that in Ephesians 1, that the person who meditates on God's Word becomes prosperous and, and successful. And this has been borne out by sociological studies, that when communities accept the Christian faith, those communities become wealthier, partly because they give up alcohol and they start treating each other, Right? But as communities adopt Christian standards and values, it brings prosperity. And God's Word brings joy. I don't know if you've discovered the joy of God's Word. Jeremiah said, your words came and I ate them, and they were my joy and my heart's delight. Here's another reference to the joy of God's Word. Psalm 119. Verse 111, <laughs> don't often get to say that, verse 111, they are the joy of my heart, God's statutes. So the Word of God is at work in us. Expose yourself to God's Word. Don't, don't be on a diet of, of, of chocolate and chips. Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual. You're, you're worldly. You're infants in Christ. I had to give you more milk. Oh, poor you. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. We need to be those who, who eat the solid stuff. We mustn't be like the infant who's not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 
Now we get to the really interesting part of the sermon. So if you're not, if you're not tracking, you will start to at this point. Because Paul then launches into some very strong words against the Jews, against the Jews. And I want to read them to you so that you know what I'm talking about. Sorry, I'll just get in a, behind in my notes here. Right, here we go. And we read this earlier. But here Paul says eight things about the Jews that's not really so, so lacquer at first reading. He talks about the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out. They displease God, hostile to all men. They keep us from speaking to the Gentiles. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So I need to just talk to you about this passage of Scripture. When the Nazis were, were gearing up for the Holocaust, there was a man named Julius who was the editor of the Nazi newspaper. And in 1937, he, he described a particular book or pamphlet as the most radical anti-Semitic tract ever published. Okay, the head of a Nazi newspaper. He's very excited to find this, this tract. And would you be shocked if I told you that tract that was being referred to was written by a Christian? And would you be even more shocked if I told you that that tract was written by Martin Luther? And it's called On the Jews and Their Lies. And just so you know, I'm not making this all up. You're welcome to, to get hold of this book and read it for yourself. Martin Luther wrote On the Jews and Their Lies in 1543. And I quote directly from his publication. He wrote in German, of course, but this is the English what shall we Christians do with this rejected and contemned, condemned people, the Jews? And then he gives a whole lot of advice. Set fire to their synagogues or schools. And look at the motive here. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see we are Christians. Huh? This is now Martin Luther's way of showing God what great Christians we are. Let's burn down a few synagogues. But it gets worse. I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed. Martin Luther goes on. I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings should be taken. I advise that rabbis be forbidden to teach. I advise that Jews should not be given safe passage on the highways. I, I advise that they can't charge interest, that all of their cash, treasures, and silver and gold be taken from them. Any idea where this might have landed up down in time? I recommend making them work hard 
And if we're still afraid they might harm us, our wives, our children, our servants, our cattle, then let's do emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, and eject them forever from the country. So these words are difficult to deal with because this was written by a Christian, and this was written by a man that God used greatly to, to really bring about the birth of Protestantism. It shows us that you can be very right about some things and very wrong about others. It shows us that Christian leaders have feet of clay, and the Lutheran church has profoundly apologized for these writings. And towards the end of his life, Martin Luther also softened his tone. But when we come to Thessalonians, it, it looks as though Paul is writing from the same spirit, that he's really got it in for the Jews. And perhaps Martin Luther read this and then this inspired him to write on the Jews and their lies. So what do we just say about Paul's writing here about the Jews? Well, I think it's helpful to understand that Paul is Jewish. It's a little bit like that whole question of can people be racist towards their own kind, as it were. But, but Paul is Jewish, so we need to bear that in mind when we understand what he must be saying. We also need to understand that Paul had a great heart for the Jewish people. We know in Romans 9 that he wrote after he wrote Thessalonians. He talks about how I love the Jewish people so much, and I wish that I myself could be cursed if that would mean they would be saved. So, so Paul is not anti-Semitic. He, he is Jewish himself. He loves the Jewish people. Most of the early Christians were also Jewish. It's only as the gospel spread into the Roman world that, that Gentiles began to outnumber Christians. But a great portion of the church would have been Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. All of the, the, the 12 disciples, the, the, the people God chose to start His church, were Jewish. And so when Paul writes about the Jews and how terrible they are and how he's glad God's punished them, he's not referring to all Jews everywhere or Jewish people as a race. He's talking about a specific group of Jewish people that were opposing him, persecuting Christians and preventing the gospel from going forward. Those are the Jews that Paul is talking about in this passage. But there is a need to, to counter anti-Semitism today. It, it is a spirit anti-Semitism, just like racism is a stronghold. The Jews were a nation chosen by God to be His special possession and treasure. And Satan has taken great delight to cause damage and harm and persecution. We need to recognize as Christians that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. 
Let me remind you that there are more than one, there's more than one covenant in the Old Testament. There's the Noah's covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant. As, as New Testament Christians, we just conflate all of them. Oh, the, the covenant, it's gone. No, the, the, the Mosaic covenant is obsolete. The Mosaic covenant has been upgraded. But God's promise to Abraham remains in effect. The Abrahamic covenant has been, has, is being outworked. And God took Abraham, who was a pretty much a nobody who worshipped the moon, and said, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. Not a religious group of people, but descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And friends, we need to recognize that God isn't finished with the Jewish people as a, as a race, as a people, as a nation. He still has a plan for them. The church has not replaced Israel. We've been grafted into the vine. They are the, the real vine, and, and most of them are, are, are not living in submission to God. But God has a plan for His people. And if we curse Israel... God's promise to Abraham is that he will curse us. And if we bless Israel and Jewish people, the promise is that he will bless us. By the way, this doesn't mean that Jews get a free pass, that they're all going to heaven or something like that. They have to be saved just the same way we are as Christians, through faith and trust in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. It also doesn't mean that we must uncritically support Israel. Israel does do some morally questionable things, but I'm always saddened when I hear of Christians joining the Israel-bashing bandwagon. The best example being BDS, the boycott, disinvest, and sanction. And two weeks ago, the Anglican Church in South Africa officially signed on to the BDS campaign. And I've got nothing against boycotting, sanctioning, and dising, disinvesting in countries that are abusing people's human rights. In fact, we should do that. The problem is when we single out one nation on the face of the earth, oh, okay, and Iran, and single them out for unique treatment. And that, my friends, is anti-Semitism at work in our world today and in South Africa. In 2018, more, un more United Nations resolutions were brought forth to sanction Israel than all of the sanctions against other nations of the world in one year. 
when we single out one group of people for something but not another? Why is there no campaign in South Africa to boycott, disinvest, and sanction China for all their human rights violations? Israel is the whipping boys because they're small and they're in a neighborhood where nobody likes them. But we also mustn't be unwise in our support of Israel. I can remember when we was lost in Israel, and one of my sons wanted to go down to the Wailing Wall for a time of prayer. And I just felt I needed to say to him, please don't think you're going to be any closer to God there than you would if you were praying here in the apartment. A baptism performed in the Jordan is no better than a baptism performed in the Lisbeck. Some Christians can really go overboard with the whole Israel thing. You know, here's this oil from Israel, and if I pray for you using this oil, it's going to be much more effective. Then you're trusting in magic. That's not Christian theology. That's it on that part. This is going to be vain. And then this passage ends with Paul telling us what is his joy and his crown and his glory. And he asks the question and then gives the answer, typical Paul. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? And the answer is, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. And what do, I, what do I take away from Paul's words here? Well, it's making disciples that brings great joy. Bringing people into God's kingdom. Nurturing them and discipling them. Planting and growing new churches. Gathering people. This for us as Christians is, is, is to be gloried in. It's a tremendously joyful activity. Reminds me of what John wrote in 3 John 1. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he's not talking about his own kids, although that also brings joy. He says there is no greater joy that Paul had in his life than seeing people he led to the Lord growing in God and doing great things. And if you're missing a little bit of joy in your life, and you think your crown is going to be the kind of thing that comes in a Christmas cracker, that big, instead of made of gold, if you want real joy in your life, I want to encourage you to get involved in in Christian ministry, in, in, in discipling people, in 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 helping people in the name of the Lord. It's a tremendously satisfying and joyful thing. So to summarize, the Word of God is living and active. It performs a a great work in us when we read it. 
Secondly, be aware of anti-Semitism because it's alive and well. By the way, another little part of this verse and God's promise to Abraham that's also come true. God said all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I think it is arguable that the tiny little people group called Israel, Jewish people, have probably contributed much more to science and culture and entertainment than any other. In fact, it's so obviously true in terms of their size and the proportion of their contribution to, to science. I mean, just think of Albert Einstein and the list goes on and on and on. It is true that God has made the Jews a blessing to the world. Beware of anti-Semitism. It comes in all forms. Sure, you can sign on to BDS, but just make sure there's also a BDS campaign against 30 other nations, because if not, you're being very unfair. And Paul's source of joy and glory, it's you. It's the people that he was leading and developing in the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that we don't have to wonder anymore, what do you like? What's important to you? It's all revealed in your word. Lord, help us to be on a diet of, of, of meat, of that which is nutritious, that which will feed us and grow us. May we be equipped by your word, encouraged by your word, enlivened by your word. Inspire us all to, to love your word, to study your word. And help us, Lord, to navigate the, the politics and the, the social issues around anti-Semitism and racism in all its other forms. God forbid, Lord, that we curse those who you have declared are blessed by you. And help us all, Lord, to discover the joy of Christian ministry, of nurturing and discipling and growing and developing believers. Give us each the joy of experiencing that, Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's the end of our service. Let's enjoy some fellowship across the foyer.